We have two readings this morning, and the first is from Genesis uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 12 to 21. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. We continue the reading in Second Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 22. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, These teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings 
Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature— They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. This is God's word. Let's pray for God's help as we look at that second reading. Our Father God, we ask that as we consider the words that you have caused to be written here in 2 Peter chapter 2, we would hear you speak and we would respond with obedience for your sake and the sake of your Son. Amen. Now, friends, I want to talk to us this morning about freedom, living free, staying free. I want to talk to us this morning about freedom. Abraham Lincoln said that freedom was the last great hope of earth, and I want to talk to us this morning about freedom and how to stay free, how Christian people are to be free, live free, and stay free. Now, if you were listening at all to those readings, and particularly the second reading, it didn't sound as though it was all about freedom. There is, uh, near where I grew up, uh, a little remote and isolated harbor, and every time I go back there and visit, um, I can't resist going into the water. So you're driving along quite a high coast road, and then you wind down a little lane all the way to the bottom of the hill, and there's a remote harbor, usually empty. And, of course, a harbor opens up uh, into the wide sea. And uh, where the boats usually uh, go in, you can wade in and start to swim, and it's hard to resist. 
But I'm always amazed at how quickly, in a flash, the water beneath me is dark and deep green. It's much deeper and darker and murkier and more uncomfortable than I would like. And it could be that that's the kind of feeling we had when that chapter was read. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we've been in this letter of 2 Peter. And uh, after the overture of chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we had uh, verses 12 to 21 of chapter 1, when Peter was teaching us the one truth that would keep us stable, safe. And uh, he told us it was the truth that the Lord Jesus is coming in power. And then we come to chapter 2, and the waters feel deeper and darker than we'd like. But yet I want to persuade us that today is all about how we stay free, how we live free and remain free as Christians. Uh, Even though that it seemed like there wasn't so much talk about freedom and more talk about gloomy chains. Did you see that? Not so much about escape, but about being kept in dungeons. Not so much about rescue, more about judgment. Not so much about escape and rescue, but about being ensnared and destroyed. And, and the reason why this chapter's here and we need it is headlined right at the beginning of the chapter by Peter. It's because there is another version of Christianity in circulation that has a label on it that says freedom, but it's the absolute opposite. It is slavish and destructive. Just look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Peter begins, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. People, that is, among Christians, they'll circulate amongst the Christian church. They'll present as teachers. They'll wear dull colors. They'll write Christian blogs, Christian books. They'll have the microphone. They'll be there at the Lord's Supper. They'll be there amongst the Christian church, the gatherings of Christian people. And verse 1, Peter says they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Lord Jesus who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. You see that people, Peter says, you can expect they will bring in to the church amongst Christians destructive heresies, and then he says they will bring swift destruction on themselves. And Peter, Peter knows that we'll never see through the lie, the promise of freedom that is in fact a destructive one, unless we see where it leads, unless we see the destruction um, that this teaching leads to. And so just glance ahead um, at verse 18. Just look across to verse 18. Because we see in verse 18, Peter says that actually these people don't present, of course, saying this is destructive. They present in an enticing way. Verse 18, speaking of the false teachers, they entice people who are escaping. That is, they take people who are set free, the Christian. And verse 19, they promise freedom, but they are slaves. And so if we're to stay free as Christian people, we need to see through this false promise of freedom. And before we do that, uh, let me just say uh, a brief word about structure, how this uh, passage breaks down, how we're to tackle it. Verses 4 to 10, verses 4 to the beginning of 10, give us a principle, a a headline truth, a headline truth. And and we need to carry that with us into verses 10 to 22, as Peter paints a picture of the false teachers and their teaching. Because the truth of verses 4 to 10 
is the one that will help us discern between the real offer of freedom and the false offer of freedom. So that's broadly how it breaks down. The truth that we'll see in verses 4 to 10 is one about judgment and about rescue, and we need that because, as we'll see, the lie that is being told is a lie about judgment and a lie about rescue. So that's, that's broadly where we're heading. Come with me, first of all, to verse 4 to 10. And uh, take out your highlighter, verse 9, beginning of verse 9, highlight it through to the, uh, the second half of verse 10, because that is the headline, that is the summary of these verses, that is the truth that Peter wants us to carry forwards. And it is this truth that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, knows how to rescue the godly from trials, that is his people, and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. The Lord can, does, will, is able to judge the ungodly and to rescue the godly, his people. Just come and see how we get there from verses 4 to 8. Verse 4, if, if, verse 5, if, verse 6, if, verse 7, and if, verse 9, if this is so, then, then, verse 9, if all that is true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous, the ungodly, for the day of judgment. Let's just see how he gets there. Verse 4, first of all, if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And that's probably speaking about an event at the beginning, recorded at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, one of the last straws, one of the last sins and transgressions before God sent the flood, uh, where was the transgression of angels, it seems. Uh, Angels who ignored God's command, God's boundaries. Uh, And the point here is that angels, powerful beings who, who live and lived in the presence of God, even angels, even ungodly angels, were not exempt from God's judgments. The Lord judges the ungodly, even angels. And then he moves forward a little bit further in Genesis to chapter 7 to 9. Verse 5, if God didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, that's the next proof. The Lord judges the ungodly. He brought the flood on the ancient worlds. Verse 6, if, the next if. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, another proof that the Lord will judge the ungodly, then, middle of verse 9, he's able to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgments. That's what the angels show. That's what the watery judgment of the flood shows. That's what the fiery judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah shows. The Lord is able, verse 9, to keep the unrighteous for a day of punishment. There is a day, it says, of just judgment, and the Lord has a track record, a proven track record, of being able to do that. Now, any real king, any real ruler, is not a powerful one because they can simply judge their enemies. They can simply bring just judgment on those who oppose them, but also if they can save and rescue their people. 
It's no real king worth speaking of who sweeps his own people away in the midst of judgment. It has to be a discriminating power. And so do you see there's something else has been woven in? Verse 5, just look with me. Although the flood came on the ungodly world, verse 5, God protected Noah. It wasn't indiscriminate. He rescues his people from trials. He doesn't sweep away the ones who trust in him, who look to him for rescue. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah was brought to ashes. But verse 7, he rescued Lot, a righteous man. Now, if you've read all of Genesis 19, you know that righteous man, to say that Lot was a righteous man, does not mean to say that he was morally perfect. It's just to say he's a believer. The believer is the person who is a moral failure turned round. A moral failure turned round. Somebody who's been put in the right with God, by God, and who's been taught to look for and long for the rescue that God offers to bring. And the Lord doesn't sweep away his people, people like that. He doesn't sweep away Lot in the midst of the judgment. So then, the the ifs of verses 48 all build to verse 9, that truth, that truth that's there in lights. If this is also, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. He really can, he really does, both judge the ungodly and rescue his people, the godly. Okay. Well, we need to bring that truth with us. That's the truth that we need to carry with us through the rest of these verses from verses 10 to 22. Now, now broadly speaking, in verses 10 to 16, what we're faced with is a lie about judgment, a lie that says there's no such thing as judgment for the ungodly. And so we'll need to bring our truth to verses 10 to 16 for it's a lie about judgment. And and then, broadly speaking, in verses 17 to 22, there's some overlap, but in 17 to 22, it's a lie about rescue. It says there's no such thing as rescue for the godly. There's no such thing as freedom for the Christian believer. And so we'll need to bring that truth of verse 9 with us to those verses. And just uh, before we, we enter in to verses 10 to 22, I, I just want to flag what what's happening here, what we're doing. So, so Peter is, is painting for us, as it were, an artist's impression of those who give the false promise of freedom. It's a broad brush sketch that he's doing for us, but he wants us to see, he wants us to recognize the false promise of freedom when we see it. And so as we go through these verses, there's, there are lots of details, there are lots of things we won't look at and won't cover, but I want to shine a light through it to see what Peter wants us to see so that we can see enough to see not just that they promise freedom, but to see through it, to see enough that we can see through it. So let's come. The first big broad brushstroke that Peter paints is verse 10. These false teachers are bold and arrogant. Verse 10. You see in the middle of that verse, it says that they despise authority end of verse 10. These people are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they're stronger and more powerful, don't bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. In other words, these are people who, who rush in where angels fear to tread. And it's hard to know precisely who the celestial beings are that are being talked about. It could be the ones who are being kept in judgment in verse 4. 
But, but either way, the, the angels, the, the powerful mighty beings that the Bible speaks about who live in the presence of God, um, well, they stand and they show that actually there's a moral authority in the universe, at the very top of which is the Lord. But yet these teachers, they don't recognize that. They don't recognize any moral authority above themselves. They think freedom is freedom from authority. And so um, these false teachers, I'm sure, would talk lots about Jesus, the forgiver, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the friend, Jesus, the tolerant one, but never Jesus, the Lord, never Jesus, the master, the one who's got the right to tell you and I how we're to live in every area of our lives. You know, for them, freedom, for their freedom, it's a freedom from authority, from the authority of the Lord's. But then just come and see the next broad brushstroke Peter paints. It is one of self-indulgence. The beginning of verse 10, they follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature. Verse 13, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They're totally free from restraint. They say, we can do what we want, where we want, with whom we want. Do you see verse 13? Peter says, they're blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. They're unafraid to come within the church community even. It might be a reference to the Lord's Supper, the church's holy meal. But even there, these teachers come in boldly without restraint. Verse 14, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They come and they're always on the lookout. So if we just pause, this is the kind of freedom that gets lived out in front of the Christian by these teachers Peter's talking about. It's one based on boldness, a freedom from authority, and leading to self-indulgence, a complete freedom from any moral restraint. And it says very loud and clear to the Christian person, there is no judgment for me, the false teacher, and there is no rescue for you. Puts us under great pressure. We'll think about that pressure in a few minutes. But Peter continues the portrait so that we can see through the promise of freedom. And it's there in verse 12. For they are not only bold and arrogant, but they are ignorant. Verse 12. It's based, do you see, their arrogance is based not on knowledge, but ignorance. Because, verse 12, they blaspheme in matters they do not understand. That shocking image of a brute beast is used. In other words, they don't know what they're talking about. They're irrational. And what they don't know is the truth of verse 9, which is that the Lord is able to judge the ungodly. He showed it with the angels, with the flood, and with Sodom and Gomorrah. He is able to judge the ungodly. He is able to bring uh, to justice those who live in his world as if it's their playground and treat people as though they're, they're playthings. Jesus says he is able to judge the ungodly. And so we need to see through to the end of verses 12 and 13 that they will be destroyed, that they will be paid back harm for the harm that they have done. And so in a sense, Peter has not told us anything new in verses 10 to 16. 
he has applied and, and used the truth of verse 9, that the Lord is able to judge the ungodly so that we can see through this promise of freedom as a false promise, as one that leads to destruction. Look where it leads. Now, we need to come on to the second part of, of the portrait in verses 17 to 22. Just come with me to verses 17 to 22. And see that it's all about two different ideas of freedom and rescue. So, verses 17 to 22. First of all, verse 18 the end of that verse, do you see that they are enticing people? That's a word used of, of what fishermen do when they put bait on their hooks or what fowlers do when they lay traps for animals. It's designed to ensnare. They entice people who are just escaping, so people who've already been set free. Um, they entice those who are escaping. Verse 19, they promise freedom. So they come promising freedom, but actually what's there is the opposite while they themselves are slaves. And then we get these images, vivid, shocking images in verses 20 to 22. The picture of being locked into slavery, going back to something that they'd once left. It's the picture of the dog returning to its vomit, the sow, going back to the mud. And so it's all about uh, escape, real escape, and avoiding the danger of entanglement and ensnarement. And so as we do that, let me come first of all and just see that they are promising something. So the the next bit of the portrait that Peter paints is to say they come promising something. Do you see that in verse 17? They're springs. They're mists. Springs promise water to people in thirsty lands. Mists promise rain to people in dry land. It's tantalizing. They come promising something. Now, uh, where I live, uh, the part of London where I live, there'll be lots of people who come and they'll knock on the door from time to time and they'll sell something. But I'm rarely tempted because they're coming to sell something trivial. They're coming to sell dishcloths. I'm not tempted by that. It's not tantalizing. But what these teachers are promising really is. You want it and I want it. They come promising freedom. They come promising freedom. Now, what kind of freedom is it that they're promising, that they're talking about. Well, do you see, verse 18, how they entice, what they're promising, they appeal to the lustful desires of sinful human nature. Theirs is a freedom that always says yes to yourself. Now, those, uh, the corrupt desires of the sinful nature, they're something that every Christian knows. Every Christian shares those. And so we're prone to this promise So I might know on the one hand that uh, a job that I have is a good gift from God, uh, to have something to provide for my family, to share with those in need, and yet I twist it and I turn it and see it as something that's simply for self-advancement. My colleagues are only steps, really, that I can trample over for self-advancement. Or the good gift of family, I can turn around and say it's for self-gratification. And so I'm very prone to someone who comes along and says, you should always say yes to yourself. That's okay to say yes to yourself. That's to be free to always say yes to yourself. But do you see that at that very moment, at that very moment, you can see the lie? You can see the lie, says Peter. Verse 19, they promise them freedom while they themselves 
are slaves, slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. You see, they always say, say yes to yourself. But of course, it's the slave who always says yes. They can never say no. The slave always has to say yes, 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 yes. The slave can never say no. Only the free person can ever say no. And so the freedom they're promising is the freedom to be able to say yes to yourself. It's a freedom that's tantalizing and tempting. I don't know what's your battles and particular temptations that rage at the moment, but we're prone to someone coming along and saying, and relieving the tension and saying, just say yes to yourself. In whatever area of life it might be, just say yes to yourself. And Peter says, no, therein is the lie. The slave always says yes to himself. Do you see verse 19? A slave, a person is a slave to whatever has mastered him. So can I say that um, we ought to beware lives and teaching where people come along to us and say, no change is needed. Freedom is about being who you are. We ought to beware people who come and set aside Jesus' words so that we can say yes to ourselves. They say no change is needed, and freedom is being who you are and who you want to be. That's the teaching we're to avoid. And the purpose, just very briefly, of these images in verse 20 to 22 of the slave going back to their slavery, being mastered by it, of verse 22, the proverb of the dog returning to its vomit, the sow returning to its mud, is in a sense saying something very obvious indeed to us. It's saying, please don't take advice on freedom from somebody who is in chains, who once was free and went back to slavery. Please don't take advice on cleansing from a dog that having once left what it had vomited up as toxic returns to it. It says, please don't take advice on cleansing from a pig that once clean returns to the mud. They're shocking images. They're powerful images. But in a sense, they're obvious to us. And so the person who comes along and says, the only way of escape, the only way of freedom for you as a Christian is to give in, to join in, to indulge everything you want. Well, that is a slavery. And there is, there is another way of escape. We've already prayed it this morning in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord, the same Lord who knows how to rescue his people from trials and temptations, teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. And it was a prayer that the Lord answered of Lot's. It was a prayer that the Lord answered of Noah's, as it were, before time. And it's a prayer that he answers for each Christian person, not just today, but until he returns. He has the power to rescue us from the temptations and the trials that we face. There is always a way of escape for the Christian person. And so as we conclude in this chapter, we've seen that actually the way to stay free The way Peter keeps us free this morning is by seeing through a lie about freedom, a lie that only leads to slavery, only leads to ensnarement. Let's bow our heads as we close.
Our Lord God, we pray to you who are able to keep us from falling, who are able to present us pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, you who are able to rescue your people from every trial and temptation. We pray that we would know that power of escape, that power of rescue today. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.